Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We are just beginning a journey through Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Today we're talking about forgiveness. Here is the key concept for today. We are called to be a fellowship of forgivers, a fellowship of forgivers. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we are. You've probably heard the children's nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Nothing could be done about poor Humpty. But here's the point. We need to make sure that we don't fall into what I will call the Humpty Dumpty syndrome in the church of Jesus Christ. That is the belief that once a person falls into sin, nothing can be done to put that person back together again. That's not true. Aren't you glad that Jesus knows that's not true? Today we're talking about restoration. We're talking about forgiveness as the Apostle Paul calls upon the Corinthian church to be forgivers and by extension us as well. So let's begin the reading. We'll start in verse 4. We're jumping into his his, uh, train of thought, but you'll pick it up quickly. He says this, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Wouldn't it be nice if we, once come to Christ, would never have to feel temptation again? Wouldn't it be nice if those darts of Satan would fall short or to either side of our heart? But the reality is we know that that's not the way it is. The church is people, and all people struggle. We're all in recovery. Those of us who know Christ as personal Savior, we're all in recovery. You're all recovering sinners. And as a result of that, we do feel temptation. We do fall. Warren Wiersbe used to say this, Oh, to live above with the saints we love, oh, it will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, now that's another story. 
We are a fellowship of the fallen. But Paul here is urging forgiveness, and he's urging reinstatement of a fallen brother. So who is he talking about? Actually, there's two schools of thought on that. One school of thought is he's talking about the man that we learned about back in 1 Corinthians 5, who Paul asked the church to discipline. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, there is a grievous sin that has been discovered. Um, uh, An individual in the church is committing the sin of incest. He's actually having an affair with his stepmother, and that's bad. But worse, so to speak, is uh, the uh, attitude of the church. The attitude of the church, they considered themselves to be progressive. They considered themselves to be modern of thought. And so their attitude was kind of an accommodation to this sinful lifestyle. We're so much above calling sin, sin. We're much too open-minded, much too superior to kind of get into all of that. And Paul severely rebukes that attitude. And he asks the church to discipline this individual. Why? So that he would repent of his sin and turn back and walk purely in the faith. Now, that's one point of view that that's who he's talking about. Another point of view is that it's an unknown person, uh, a person who's been guilty of the sin of divisiveness, someone that Paul confronted in that severe, in that painful visit, I should say, that's not recorded for us in the book of Acts, but he had dealings with during that visit, and he addressed the issue in the severe letter that we no longer have And that's another point of view. I must tell you that uh, the uh, first explanation has the most weight of tradition behind it. But no matter who it is that Paul is talking about, the issues are exactly the same. The sin of of the individual has distressed the body, and it should distress the body. A flagrant sin has been found in the family, and that needs to be dealt with because sin, if not dealt with in an individual life or a family of faith, has a spiritually cancerous effect. It's spiritual cancer for the sinner themselves. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. There's always a victim, and at least the victim is the sinner themselves. Romans one twenty seven. Paul writes it this way, Men committed indecent acts with other men and receive in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, in that verse, Paul's talking about the sin of homosexual activity. But receiving in ourselves the penalty of our sin is across the board in terms of sinful activity that doesn't belong in the life of the Christian. Soon, we become prisoners of the sin. Soon, we just take that to be part of who we are, maybe even wearing the label of our sin, and we're trapped there. Thomas Costain has written a book called The Three Edwards. And in the book, one of the stories that he tells is a story of a duke in the area of the world that we now call Belgium during the 14th century. And the duke's name was Reynald, but his nickname was Crassus. It means fat in Latin. And he, he was succumbing to the sin of gluttony. His brother, Edward, had him imprisoned in a small room in the tower. That's one of the three Edwards that's being talked about in the book. And after a period of time, his brother actually said he could go. He opened the door, and the door was unlocked, but it was a tiny little door. And every day, his brother, Edward, sent in desserts and fine foods, and poor Renal just couldn't resist. 
And in that imprisonment, he got bigger and bigger. He couldn't get himself out of the door. It's a perfect picture for how we imprison ourselves in sin. The end of the story is finally they sent troops up there. They kind of widened the opening and wedged him out after 10 years. And he died after having ruined his health one year after release. We receive a penalty in ourselves for our own sin. What penalty do we receive in our lives? Well, we, at least it's the penalty from, of alienation from God. At least it's the penalty of inability to detect His will and His guidance because there's a barrier to our fellowship and pretty soon we, we're, we're not able to make the decisions that He wants us to make. We receive uselessness in His hands as we are not the pure vessels that He wants us to be. We receive the penalty of the loss of what might have been we would have lived our lives to honor God and be mobilized for His service. Spiritual cancer hurts the sinner. And spiritual cancer hurts the sin the, the, in the family, hurts the family of the church because we have influence on one another. The victims of our sin are often those who are closest to us, those we love the most and care about the most. And spiritual cancer begins to affect them as well. And all of us soon, we... We have ministries that just don't happen. How many more Bible study leaders or teachers or disciplers or missionaries or preachers or choir members would there be except for the fact that the walk with Christ has been trapped and diverted because of sin? It shuts down our testimony. We are meant to shine as character witnesses for Jesus and His values. We're meant to make Jesus famous for His mercy and His love, but as we tarnish that image Soon, people don't see Jesus in us. And Jesus himself cared about this. He spoke about it in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And his warning is, avoid that. Value righteousness. And what we need to see here is the Corinthian church has said yes to the advice of the Apostle Paul. They have dealt with this sinner, and they have intervened for righteousness, and he has repented. He's turned back and, he, and, and wants once again to follow after Jesus. And Paul says, now is the time to forgive him. Reaffirm your love for him. Forgiveness is called for. Look at verse 8. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We learned a few things about how to deal with sin in the church family in our own lives in this passage here. The first one we just made, and that is deal with sin seriously. Take it serious. Paul did not look at the situation there and say, well, who am I to criticize this brother? After all, I'm not perfect, therefore I won't say anything. That kind of live and let live kind of stuff, let's not make waves, it only hurts the gospel message. We've got to take it seriously and get involved. We need to deal with it directly. This individual, whoever he was, was expelled from the fellowship in terms of uh, seeking to bring repentance into his life. He was put out. And that's the whole idea of the, of the discipline, is to bring about repentance. The point of discipline is that it comes to an end at some point. And then when there is repentance, we get to re reaffirm our love. 
You see, discipline is not vengeance. It's correction. It's real purpose. Any discipline, whether this is in a family or whether this is in a church family, the real purpose is so that there can be change and then reaffirm forgiveness. The purpose of the discipline is to work itself out of a job, in other words, to bring about a result in which it will not be needed. When there is a grievous failure, if instead of that, we just write the person off and cross out their name and a permanent marker and never welcome them again, even when there is repentance, that's not the heart of God. He wants them back. He wants them renewed. He wants them changed. I think of that probably the most famous incident of confrontation after a grievous sin in the Old Testament, and that is David's adultery with Bathsheba. And Nathan the prophet confronted David on the, uh, regarding that sin and God got a hold of David's heart, and David repented of that sin, and he cried out to God in the spirit of repentance in Psalm 51, saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. That's the heart of a repentant person. And discipline is no longer needed when it has done its work. And Paul says, reaffirm your love. But evidently in the Corinthian church, there's a hesitancy there. There's some sort of resentment there. Maybe they're not letting him back in the church at all, or maybe they're letting him kind of come in and stay in the shadows. Paul doesn't say, let him slink into your fellowship, but make sure you're not too nice to him. He says, reaffirm your love. Because if you simply punish, but then don't reaffirm your love when there is repentance, they will feel like they're still imprisoned. It's a frequent cause for divisions in families and in church families when we are unwilling to forgive past offenses. And Paul says, you must forgive. Why? Because we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Watch out for Satan's schemes. We're not going to let him outwit us, but he does outwit us when in a pretense of doing our duty for Jesus, we become harsh or unloving people. When that happens, Satan is outwitting us because he wants grudges to be nursed. He wants the divisions to continue. On the other hand, Satan outwits us when a quest to be loving, we forget the basic truths of righteousness. Both extremes are wrong. And Paul says, I want to show you the blessed middle. Make sure you forgive and then welcome him back. Whenever you forgive someone, you are making a threefold promise, a promise that goes in three directions at the same time. The promise, first of all, goes to the one you're forgiving, and you're promising that you're not going to allow your attitude toward them, toward them to be governed by the memory of that which you have forgiven. You're promising that. You're saying, I emotionally put this aside. My treatment of you will not be through that filter anymore. The offense is dead and buried, and I'm not going to dig it up every time I need it. I promise. And you're promising to those around you when you forgive someone. You're promising that you're not going to use the knowledge of that past offense or whatever it was as a point of conversation or gossip. You're not going to allow that into your circle of relationship because if you do, if you don't make that promise, 
Even though you're going through the motions of forgiveness, what happens is you're planting resentment in the hearts of the people around you. And thirdly, you're promising to yourself, this is the most important promise of all, you're promising to yourself that when this memory comes up, and it will, when the memory comes up, I'm not going to allow the emotions of that memory to seize my heart or to capture my thoughts. So in reality, what you're promising yourself when you forgive, you're promising that I'm going to forgive over and over again. I'm going to forgive over and over again until this memory doesn't have the pain that it has today. That threefold promise, we're always making it when we forgive. And when we're a fellowship of believers who forgive that way, we make Jesus look good. Paul says that's what you need to do because you are the aroma of Christ. It's an interesting phrase. What Paul does in the later sections of this chapter is he pulls something out of the Roman culture that would be uh, extremely meaningful to his readers to make that point. And it starts in verse 14. Let's read there. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we smell of death and to the other the fragrance of life. Now, what's happening there is Paul is asking them to think about something that they know happens inside the Roman Empire. They would have been very familiar with it, and it was called a triumph. When a, when a general of high rank and, and come, would come back from a war with uh, just a, a, you know, a tremendous victory, once in a while, the Roman citizens would be treated to what they called a triumph. A triumph was a, proce- a processional or a parade in which the general would be honored. Now, you need to remember that Corinth was a city that had a high population of ex-soldiers because one of the promises in this time period was if you served in the Roman army for a period of time, when you got out, you got some land. But the Romans didn't want the soldiers too close, so they sent them to Greece. And they started giving them land in Greece. Corinth was one of those places. So there's a lot of ex-soldiers. They would be very familiar with this procession. But in, in reality, every one of the citizens, they would have the awareness of this. And it would be a military processional through the streets of Rome. First, the government officials would come. And then the trumpeters would come. And then a sample of the spoils, some of the money, some of the loot, maybe the animals that they brought back from, from the war. Then, interestingly enough, they would come carrying paint or models of the land in which the battle took place so the citizens could visualize it. And then after that, they would, co- they would come the, capt- the captives, a sample of the prisoners of war, hopefully one of them being the defeated king so that he would be properly humiliated. And then the general himself in a chariot pulled by white horses and finally after him his soldiers in dress uniform. But here's the thing that Paul is connecting to. All that time, all that processional that through, through the streets would be covered over with the burning of incense. And pretty soon what happened was the aroma of this victory filled the city of Rome. 
And everybody would know, would sense a triumph is happening. And Paul is is using that image and he's saying, you are the aroma of Christ's triumph as you walk in processional with him in this life of faith. And as you walk, he is the general, the conquering king, and you with him, and you give off that aroma, that aroma of graciousness, of forgiveness, of new life, of a loving Savior. In the parade in Rome, to the prisoners, that incest smelled like death, but to the Romans it was triumph. And the same here, he says, some smell it, it smells like death, but it is the aroma of life a new life in Christ. We can't tell, we can't govern how people will react to that, but we are meant to give it off. We are meant to emanate this aroma of triumph. And you do that by forgiving, by forgiving. But there's a theological reason to forgive. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul says this, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. See, here's the point. If you are a Christ follower today, you have been forgiven. Just like last week, we talked about how Jesus started a chain of comfort where we're to be comforters. So this week we see in Jesus, it starts a chain of forgiveness and we're to be forgivers. And we forge that first link in that chain as we experience the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. And we find through our own repentance that we are made new from the inside out. And since that has happened in you, Paul is saying, forgive others. You are called to. But as I made that point just in passing, preparing my own mind, I thought to myself, I wondered if there's some for whom that first link in the chain has never been made. I wonder if there's some of us here today who, if you really were to be honest, With your own self, you'd you'd say, I'm not sure I've ever forged that link. I'm not sure that I have the forgiveness from Jesus in the first place. See, all of this is based on the fact that we have been transformed because of the love of Christ through forgiveness. Now, if you're here today and you're saying, you know, I'm not sure that's true of me, or maybe you're sure it's not true of you. The only reason you're struggling with that issue today is is the Holy Spirit is saying, you know, you need to make that sure. Because the offer of forgiveness starts with Jesus to you. And the work that He did on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, we no longer have to pay that. But it doesn't automatically get canceled. It gets canceled as we turn in repentance and faith and welcome the forgiving work into our life. Have you done that? Wouldn't it be awful if we leave this place and some of us haven't? And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I don't know how many people I'm talking to, but if you're here today and you say, you know, I do not, I really don't have the assurance that I've been forgiven of my sins by Jesus. And I don't know if I've ever turned to Him in faith and repentance. It can happen today because it is a moment of faith in your life and in prayer. I'm going to ask you to repeat a simple prayer after me. If you're saying to yourself, 
Now is the time to make it sure. It goes like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe you died on the cross and you rose again. And I believe that you can forgive my sin. So do so now. I want to be your child. Forge that link of forgiveness in me today. Now, if you prayed that prayer or anything like it, the Lord Jesus responds to that faith. Those are not magic words. It's an attitude of the heart where you are desirous most of all of receiving forgiveness forever. And things are changing for you. We can be made new as we come to Him. I'd like to pray for you if you prayed that prayer. With no one else looking around, if you've said that prayer to the Lord Jesus this morning and say, yes, Pastor, I prayed with you. Today, I want that forgiveness you offer. There's just one. Slip up your hand and put it down, and we'll be praying for you. Sir, yes, sir, here in the front. God bless you. Is there another? Yes, way in the back. God bless you. And here on the side. Thank you, sir. I see it. Thank you. Is there another? We'll pause for a moment. Way in the back. God bless you, sir. I see it. Thank you. We'll pause for you. Yes, ma'am. God bless you. Lord, we thank you for these soft of heart, for these ready to say yes, desirous to nail it down, that we want to know that we know that we have been forgiven. And it comes as we look to you in repentance and faith. We recognize in so doing that you always respond. So we thank you for these today who have a new relationship with you, a new journey of faith ahead. Bless them, we pray. And bless all of us, enabling us to be the links in the chain you want us to be. Do not be afraid to call sin, sin, and not be hard of heart to welcome and forgive when repentance is demonstrated. Lord, we want it all. We want wholeness in you. We thank you, Lord, that you receive us. In your name we pray. Amen. I've asked Ryan to come and sing a song of hope over you just in the last few moments of our service. So just sit tight for a moment and just take in the message of this song.
dark and pours the rain. Then cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, and live. Oh, when the love spills over and music fills the night, and when you can't continue joy inside then dance for Jesus dance for Jesus dance for Jesus and live and with your final heartbeat kiss the world goodbye then go in peace Laugh on glory's side and fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, and live. Fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus. If you prayed that prayer with me, whether for the first time or maybe to renew your commitment of faith, in a moment as we leave, I'm going to ask you to slip up and talk with the prayer counselors by the table next to the organ. They're going to take some information from you so that I can be in touch with you this week. I have a booklet I want to send you about walking this journey of faith. So you slip forward and they'll pray with you and for you. Or maybe you have another prayer request, something in your life that you need prayer for. You can come up and they will minister to you. But first, let's all pray together. Stand together and then we'll pray together. Standing first, praying second. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that there is a way, and Jesus is the way. Thank you that you receive us, Lord, as we run to you. So help us do that. This next week, maybe some of those verses will apply. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are always there. Dismiss us with your blessing. Watch over us, we pray, and use us in ways that bring you praise. In your name we ask it. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.